Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. A newly formed coalition is joining with key state lawmakers to campaign for a ballot measure to give New Yorkers a constitutional right to clean air and clean water. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt explains. The proposal on the ballot this November would amend Article 1 of the state's Constitution. Senate sponsor Robert Jackson says the change comes down to 15 simple words. Those powerful words are each person shall have a right to clean air and water and a healthful environment. He says the amendment will empower citizens to go to court, if necessary, to enforce those rights. We will finally have safeguards requiring government to consider the environment and our relationship to Mother Earth in decision-making. Polls show that voters overwhelmingly back the measure. A recent Siena College poll finds 80% of New Yorkers support it, with just 12% opposed. The coalition includes major environmental groups, the League of Women Voters, and environmental justice advocates. Tamson Hollow lives in Newburgh, where the main water supply was found to be contaminated with PFAS chemicals from firefighting foam used for training by the nearby New York Air National Guard base. Hollow says the city is also facing a proposed siting of a power plant. She says Newburgh, like many majority communities of color, faces a disproportionate share of threats to its air and water and has been a dumping ground of environmental toxins since the 1920s from companies including DuPont and General Electric. In Newburgh, our asthma rates are already four times higher than state average before we get that fracked gas power plant, which we will not get. Our lives statistically are shorter, yet corporations target communities like ours and succeed time and time and time again in adding to our environmental burden. Business groups who oppose the measure say the 15 simple words could have some complicated outcomes. The Business Council's Ken Pakalski, who spoke about the amendment when it was approved in June, predicted that the change could prompt costly, frivolous lawsuits against companies and lead to job losses. He says it leaves many unanswered questions. How exactly is it going to work? Um, what will it do? Who will use it? And who will they, it be used against? So we do think it would create incredible amount of uncertainty. Pakulski says the state already has enough environmental regulations in place to prevent air and water pollution. The business groups say they know, though, they face an uphill battle in changing public opinion. Peter Iwanowitz with Environmental Advocates is a former commissioner of the State Department of Environmental Conservation. He says fears of excess lawsuits and job reductions are overblown. He believes the constitutional change would lead to better decisions from state regulators before a threat to clean air and water can occur. Decisions now will have to be screened of whether it violates a constitutional right to clean air and clean water. And we think it's going to lead towards more thorough and better front-end decision-making that will reject a lot of the uh, proposals that are out there now. The coalition plans to use social media to get the word out in the coming months. If approved, the constitutional amendment would take effect January 1, 2022. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. 
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Well, Alan, at his first news conference in nine days, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo applauded the Department of Justice's decision to drop a federal probe into New York's handling of COVID-19 nursing home deaths. It was an outrageous allegation, Cuomo said. By the numbers of death as a percentage, New York is number 31 in the country. Of nursing home deaths, we're not even near the top in terms of percentage of deaths in nursing homes. Why New York? Except that it was all politically motivated. Republicans at the state and federal level criticized the decision, including Republican Congresswoman Claudia Tenney of New York's 22nd District writing a letter to U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland demanding answers to why the Department of Justice stopped the investigation. A win for Cuomo? Well, of course, this is a win for Cuomo. In fact, we now have Speaker Carl Hasty. I've just written a column about this, saying no impeachment. I think from what we're seeing, along with the feds basically taking hands off, that Cuomo has survived this. Maybe I'm wrong, but I've been saying all along, as you know, David, that he would run again. And I think there's a very good chance that he'll win again. However, we don't really know what the Republicans are going to come up with as an opponent. If the people who are now announcing go ahead and run for governor on the Republican side, Cuomo will win. Now, there's something we have to look at here, and that is the role of the Working Families Party. They don't like Cuomo, that's for sure. They ran against him the last time and they primaried him. They'll do it again now. So in a general election, you could have the Republicans, you could have the Working Families dragging some of the progressives over the line, and you could have the regular Democrats supporting Cuomo. That could spell real danger for Cuomo. And then, of course, there was the number three House Republican, Elise Stefanik of New York's 21st District, saying Tuesday morning that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was to blame for the attack. Now I guess all they have to do is repeat it over and over again, right? That's right. You know, Nancy Pelosi was standing there urging people to get up to the Congress. You know, we know who it was. It was Donald Trump. And it was disgusting. And the fact that he is not being held to the responsibility that he needs to be held is appalling. Here's a guy who is directly responsible for so much of what is happening in this country. You don't like it. It's just too bad. This was a terribly important moment in American history. Let's talk about Eric Adams for a minute. The supposed now new mayor of New York City. Of course, he faces the general election, but it looks like he will probably win that most likely in a Democratic city like New York. Adams, in a video recording of a speech Monday night in Queens, Allen, told supporters that the battle he faced wasn't with his political rivals in the election, but with the Democratic Socialists of America, of course. That's AOC. What an interesting progressive battle in New York. Well, that's right. Look, Eric Adams is a moderate. He won as a moderate. Joe Biden is a moderate Democrat. Look, they both have progressive parts of what they are trying to get done. But both of them are sort of in the middle left of the party. He talks to a group. It's recorded. He comes down hard on the progressives based on the fact that he's basically saying these guys are too much. We need to be more balanced. That's what he's basically putting out there. Well, the political world gets unsettled. All of a sudden, everybody is saying that he came out after AOC, and I think he did. Nevertheless, there is a moment of terror, apparently, in the Adams camp, and they say, no, that's not what he meant. All right, we'll see. But he won as a moderate. 
He's got his moderate credentials. He's going to keep doing that. And if it worked for him up to now, he's expecting it's going to work for him afterwards. But the right thing to do is to say, okay, well, you know, we're all Democrats here and no such thing. I wasn't really after her, but he was. Finally, Alan, the age-old question about ethics in New York. Is there such a thing? Can we have an honest broker? For example, you pointed out there are inherent conflicts of interest. For example, with JCO, the Ethics Commission, the idea that no matter where you go, even if you try to be independent, someone is going to appoint somebody and they'll be beholden. Yes, well, but we know what this is all about. The governor has set things up so that he appoints the people to the group that are supposed to be watching him. Jay Cope, of course, uh, Joint Commission, has been criticized for being a, a mouthpiece for the governor. And I think to some degree that is true. They're not going to criticize the guy who put them where they are. And that is why Jay Cope is known as Jay Joke. You spoke with Blair Horner this week, executive director of NYPERG. One of the things that came up was New York and climate change and the idea that this Climate Action Council really hasn't been keeping a scorecard on what New York has done. And as Blair pointed out, the West is on fire. There's one in a millennium floods going on in different spots in the country. Here is climate change right before us. And we are going to be seeing the new normal from now on. Climate change is here. The water, the fire, the things that people have to face. And when you live through one of these major rain bursts and you feel the house literally shaking, it was really something. So climate change is here. We've been warning about it for a long time. People say, eh, you know, that's 50 years in the future. Nope. It's all happening and we better believe it because if we don't, we're doomed. Legislative Gazette Political Observer, Alan Shartok. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Amid the ongoing unrest in Cuba, rallies for change in the Caribbean nation are continuing as far away as upstate New York. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas has that story. Activists gathered Sunday for two separate Albany rallies at the intersection of Delaware, Holland, and Morton Avenues and in Townsend Park in a show of support for protesters in Cuba who've been demonstrating since July 11th. We're here today to spread awareness about the horrors that the U.S. blockade of Cuba reaps on the Cuban people and to urge the community here in Albany to, to acknowledge that we have nothing to gain from the blockade of Cubans and we have more in common with the ordinary people of Cuba than we do with the politicians and the corporate corporations who 
are enforcing this blockade of Cuba because they seek to extinguish the Cuban Revolution. Christian Garamore with the Party for Socialism and Liberation urges locals to pressure lawmakers to lift the U.S. economic embargo. We have some petitions that we're having, encouraging people to sign that would encourage um, Paul Tonko to sign on to. There's a bill in the House of Representatives right now to lift the blockade and to encourage Senator Schumer and Gillibrand to sign on to the same equivalent in the Senate. Kenyon Ryan of the Capital District Socialist Party says the protests in Cuba have been misunderstood. It's also important to recognize that the protests and the people that came out, they don't their, their, their position is that they want food, they're sick of the queues, they're sick of the commodity shortages, they, they're, they're tired of the fact that the opportunities that they have have been declining for the last 30 years or so since the USSR fell, and, and it's the blockade that creates all of these issues that people are pinning on the material existence of the government because it's right there, and you can, you can fight the government, but you can't fight the blockade, and, and the, what the protests unfortunately have done so far is create more sanctions on Cuba and more international community discipline on the island that for the last 60 years has been trying to show people what anti-imperialism and socialism can accomplish around the world. Mabel Leon of Schenectady has spent three decades working on solidarity with the people of Cuba. I feel the press and our President Biden, who I voted for, have been circulating some disinformation. Cuba is not a failed state. And the demonstrations and discontent of the Cuban people has not been put in context. And the context is the COVID virus, which is a global issue. Well, Cuba created their own vaccine. Cuba has 11 million people, 1,600 have died during the period of COVID. New York City has 8 million people and 33,000 people have died in the richest country in the world. Cuba has free health care. Cuba has free medicine. Cuba sends more doctors around the world than the UN. Russia reportedly has sent two plane loads of humanitarian aid to Cuba, currently experiencing a rise in COVID cases. Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador told news outlets Monday that it's time Biden made a decision about the embargo. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. A federally funded study is examining the human health effects of PFAS exposure. The University at Albany and New York State Department of Health are working to study those affected in Hoosick Falls and the surrounding area, as well as the city of Newburgh. Meantime, some in the Rensselaer County town of Petersburg feel regulators need to do more to address PFAS contamination there. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard with more. 
part of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry is undertaking a multi-site study of the health effects of exposure to PFAS chemicals in drinking water. PFAS contamination has been linked to numerous ill health effects, including some forms of cancer. The University at Albany and New York State Department of Health plan to enroll 1,000 adults and 300 children from the Rensselaer County village of Hoosick Falls and surrounding area and the city of Newburgh in the study. Dr. Aaron Bell is a professor of environmental health sciences at UAlbany. So this is a very structured um, traditional epidemiology research study. We will be enrolling people based on their residency in communities that have the documented exposure. And then we will be measuring um, for a variety of clinical biomarkers related to the immune system function as well as thyroid and kidney function and liver function. Uh, And in children, we will be studying neurobehavioral effects. We won't be enrolling people based on their outcome status. We'll be enrolling people based on their uh, potential for exposure. Bell recently traveled to the small Rensselaer County town of Petersburg, just a few miles from Hoosick Falls, to discuss the study. The town has been dealing with contaminated drinking water first confirmed in February 2016, following the detection of PFOA in drinking water supplies in Hoosick Falls. A group of concerned community members called C8 hosted Bell to learn more about the study. Ben Krafforst is a member. We're glad that uh, New York State did decide to include Petersburg. We are a little disappointed that they did not include people from the Municipal Water District, but they are including anybody on Poet System with 400 parts per trillion or more uh, that are in their water. But as much political and media attention has been given to Hoosick Falls, Krafforst and other members of C8 feel Petersburg has been somewhat neglected in the public eye. Petersburg has been listed as a New York State Superfund site, and Taconic, the company linked to PFAS contamination, has entered a consent order with the state. Filtration systems have been installed on private wells in the town and the municipal water supply. Testing and monitoring also continues, and the DEC is investigating the Petersburg landfill as a potential Superfund site. Kraftwurst, however, says residents have a lot of questions about contamination that have gone unanswered despite public input sessions with DEC. So we've asked uh, DEC for short-term goals. What about the eggs that people eat here, you know, because the chickens are eating insects that come from the ground, et cetera, that may be contaminated with PFOA. What about the beef? What about the maple syrup? Trees pull up water. Uh, we've, you know, and there's a, there's a host of other vegetables uh, from people's gardens, et cetera. Kraftwurst said he has heard nothing from DEC about the short-term requests. It's very frustrating for our community. It's very frustrating for our community to, to know that there's some stuff that could be done right now. We recognize that there's long-term goals that, that will take years to do, but we also recognize that there's some short-term goals that would uh, be very beneficial to, to, to the residents here to put them at ease on some of this stuff. It's almost like the DC, DEC, there's a lot that, uh, citizens in the community don't know because they are not putting pressure on Taconic and giving them a rigid timeline. Jacqueline Monette is a Petersburg resident and C8 member who lives near the Taconic plant. She claims her shaking hands are linked to exposure to contaminated water after moving to her home in 2004. Monette wants air monitoring near the Taconic plant. 
Though chemical PFOA has been voluntarily phased out by industry, Monette worries about potential unknown replacement chemicals. I, when I would go out to work in the morning, I would cover my face because I was so afraid of breathing that. And at night, too, you know, after uh, six, around six, seven, eight o'clock at night, and uh, they, they have told me, oh, well, we really can't, you know, we really can't test the air. And I know that in 2021 that that is not a true statement. And I have friends who are engineers, and they can test the air, but they don't want to because I believe there's other things in that air that they do not want to expose. Recently, three companies blamed for the pollution of water supplies in and around Hoosick Falls agreed to pay $65 million to settle a federal lawsuit. The deal that requires court approval would provide money and medical monitoring for thousands of property owners and residents. At the same time, federal lawmakers from New York are pushing for PFAS-related legislation in Washington. C8 member Ira Scher says anything to address contamination after the fact, however, is too late. I, I think the, the best overall plan in, for our future is to take a precautionary measure. And before we start using these chemicals and releasing them into the environment, let's figure out if they are, in fact, dangerous. Wait, first. So we don't have to backtrack. So we don't have to have health studies. Let's dispose of them properly if they are toxic. A DEC spokesperson responded to a WAMC request for comment, saying, quote, The New York State Department of Environmental Conservation remains committed to advancing a comprehensive cleanup in Petersburg that provides the strongest protections possible for the people of Petersburg and their environment and natural resources and holds the responsible parties fully accountable for making this community whole again. DEC continues to work closely with New York State Department of Health and the Petersburg community to comprehensively address contamination and hold polluters accountable. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government, politics. I'm David Gustina. The Adirondack Common Ground Alliance is a coalition of groups, municipalities, and interests working to maintain the environmental and economic integrity of the Adirondack Park. The alliance held its annual summer forum virtually recently, and our Pat Bradley was there. The Common Ground Alliance was created in 2007 to create a unified voice on environmental and economic issues affecting the Adirondack Park. Every summer, a forum is held to work on recommendations called the Blueprint for the Blue Line that is provided to state officials to guide management and policy strategy and decisions. Adirondack Watershed Institute Deputy Director and Forum co-host Zoe Smith explained the theme of this forum was what makes a welcoming community in the Adirondacks. We hear a lot about vibrant communities. So for the purposes of our planning, we defined it as a community that sort of embodies a lot of the obvious stuff, tangible things. But we also want to recognize that Vibrant communities also means a community that's welcoming and inclusive of its residents, both existing and new residents. 
Adirondack Diversity Initiative Director Nikki Hilton-Patterson told the Alliance that diversity, equity, and inclusion is a bridge to belonging. It's centered around gaining acceptance and support for who you are and all of your differences. It's celebrated. Data shows that where there is belonging, there is sustainability. Where there's belonging, people thrive. Where there's belonging, people stay. And that's what we want. The discussion kicked off with people offering their perspectives on how the region can create welcoming communities that attract new residents. Gore Mountain Marketing Manager Stephanie Backus had left the region but returned. She says communities and residents must be receptive to new ideas. Making sure that folks get involved and put their new ideas out there in order to just make us better and attract those new people because that's so crucial to the future of the Adirondacks. You know, along those lines, I want to show how excited I am about the Adirondacks. I feel that that's infectious. So share the love for the Adirondacks and having everyone be open to any and all new ideas. The new owner of Main Street Exchange in Saranac Lake, Tori Vasquez, pointed out that lack of amenities in the park is a barrier to promoting welcoming communities. The housing situation is not allowing more people to come in and also the kinds of jobs that they wish that they could have are also not available at this time. So I think they're working on those and also things to do in smaller towns. Like in Saranac Lake, we have events, but in smaller towns, they may not have these opportunities to keep younger people in the area, which is very important. Local Initiative Support Corporation Development Officer Dan McConvey said Adirondack communities need to look at who lives in area towns and villages and broaden their perspectives. Why is it that BIPOC or Black, Indigenous and people of color don't feel as welcomed in this region? Why isn't there a huge queer contingent of people in the area? What makes it welcoming? How do we keep it welcoming? How do we make it welcoming for who? And how are we intentional when we realize it isn't welcoming for everyone? The Alliance will hold a follow-up meeting on September 8th to summarize the findings of the July Forum. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2131. Or just listen or podcast on the web at wamc.org. Or just listen or schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. 